The idea of doing small business accounting in the cloud where you didn't have to install software, that was just a very exciting thing to think about doing. Hi everyone and welcome to What Led You Here, a podcast where global leaders share their journey to success and what they think it takes to have an edge in an increasingly complex and fast-changing world. I'm Steve Amos, CEO of Zero, and your host. I've spent the last 40 years in the technology industry and I've learned that success or failure of any business is dependent on the leader's ability to manage the consequences of change by overcoming one of the biggest barriers to change, and that's fear and doubt. In this podcast, I talk to CEOs, founders, and entrepreneurs who've embraced change, made sacrifices, overcome fear, and demonstrated true belief in their ideas. And importantly, I'll chat to them about how they instill that belief in others who back them and work with them. Today, I'm very, very pleased to be joined by Rod Drury, Zero's founder and one of New Zealand and Australia's great technology entrepreneurs. Welcome, Rod. I appreciate you spending some time with me today. Hey, Steve. Isn't it great we can be in the same room? It is good. I might have to say, and it's, uh, it's great to have the opportunity to talk to you some more about the wonderful journey and the story of Zero. So maybe just to kick it off, we're coming up to 15 years of Zero, founded almost 15 years ago here in Wellington, New Zealand. It all started very much with you and the belief that you had that you could change the game for small businesses and their accounts and bookkeepers. So tell us about where that belief evolved from and how you convinced others that this would be a great idea to pursue. Yeah, 15 years ago, it's crazy. So clearly as a 13-year-old, I had this great idea to start a software company. So the fact that everyone that I was doing it as a teenager was probably the, probably the most interesting thing. No, so I actually started Zero when I was 40. We'd done a few businesses before, had a group of people that uh, had sort of come up through Microsoft development. I went to a services business called Glazier Systems back in the day. Then I did a product called Aftermail that we sold to Quest that again sold to Dell. Through that time, I think coming from a sort of financial services background, working inside Ernst & Young, Arthur Young, doing lots of implementations of sort of high-end financial software, it was always interesting to me, what if we could do like a next generation accounting system where it was done over the top of a relational database, it didn't matter if it was cash or accrual accounting, make it really easy for end users. I'd always wanted to do that. And at the same time, I'd been playing with a bit of web development technology and the idea of doing small business accounting in the cloud where you didn't have to install software, you could just log in and all your information was there and it was easy to see and click through. That was just a very exciting thing to think about doing. So a lot of right place at the right time and the right background. One of the things I've observed, particularly uh, in talking to and working with startups, is how actually the real currency of any business is belief. That before any money flows or anything flows, it's belief. And, and I remember you once mentioning to me that you felt that belief was a huge part of what had led you to where you are today. Can you talk a little bit about that? The, the belief in yourself and the belief that your ideas can come to something really, really good for others? Yeah. So it goes back to when I was in my 20s and maybe late teens, 20s and early 30s in the tech industry. I was reading all of the books, you know, about um, Microsoft, HP, and that kind of, you know, programmed into me that if you're in the technology industry, doing like a global public company really is the ultimate goal. So it always kind of just from all the books I read, I really had that kind of locked in. And I had this kind of visualization of how that would be. And I've I've been sort of 
retired now since you've come into the business for about three years. I've had lots of time to really think about what was different. And I think what it was, was at all times, I had a really, I can imagine myself being successful and imagine the business being successful. And um, there were a lot of people sort of saying right at the very beginning, you know, you can't do accounting software. That's been done a thousand times. But I just had this view that it could be so much better. And the technology had changed that it was time to do something that was so much better as well. But at all times, I had this really clear view. So my management style wasn't uh, necessarily, you know, telling everyone exactly what they needed to do. But when I kind of walked around a lot, I'd see things that were inconsistent with that vision. And that's what I'd go to work on. And that was kind of that walking the floor and just getting a sense of what was happening and seeing things that were inconsistent, they would stand out and then go in and try to fix those problems. Yeah, and really spreading that sense of belief is really what you're talking about and how you share that with others. The lesson there for entrepreneurs that are doing their own businesses is do you really believe it? Can you see yourself being successful? And that leads to taking real ownership in what you're doing. If you don't have that, I think you need to pause and take your weekend off and do a bit of yoga and really think about it and have that vision because that'll be your kind of North Star as you go through all of the ups and downs as as you do through your journey. Yeah, and one of the uh, great examples of how your belief was shared by others was the decision to IPO, initial public offering, of course, a zero very early on and take the business public pretty much from the start. And this, again, was uh, very much part of your strategy to raise capital in advance of needing it. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what gave you the confidence to do that? Yeah, well, the last business I had was Aftermail before Zero, and um, we had um, probably about, must have been 15, 20 staff when we finished, when we sold that business. And I remember that we had to go and raise capital just for, just for working capital which is a really big lesson. So we'd go and sell an enterprise license and maybe it was worth sort of 40 or 50 grand, but we wouldn't get paid for two or three months. So when you got to about two or $300,000 of monthly revenue, you actually needed 600 grand of cash just to survive, which was a, a really interesting lesson. So we never really had investment money to do it properly. We were really sort of growing from revenue and our investment was really just that timing delay. And when we started planning zero, which we weren't getting an upfront fee, we were a low monthly cost. I knew we needed about 50 people, you know, maybe it's 10 developers. So you might need 10 testing people, need some customer care people, some sales people, and you might need a front office person as well. So it worked out, it was probably about half a million a month in salaries and we probably needed two or three years worth. So you got up to about 15 million bucks. Well, at that time, the biggest venture capital deal in New Zealand was two to three million dollars. So we just weren't in the space of normal funding at the time. But there was a business called 42 Below, which was a vodka brand. And they had told a big story. They raised money early and that ended up selling that business to Bacardi and giving shareholders an okay result. So right at that time in New Zealand, we actually thought that we could go and tell a big story. We had a good team, had a good idea. We had a, you know, we had a few wins from prior businesses. So we said, let's go and raise, you know, $15 million on the public markets. And we, you know, probably had the record for the lowest amount of revenue that any public company ever did in our first year of like 90 grand or something. So we kind of really hacked the system of what we could do at the time. And then what was really interesting, I can't remember what the numbers were, but now as a public company, you could go and raise 25% of your market cap every year by just doing a placement. So once we were public, we had a way of going and, and getting more capital every year as we could grow the business. That playbook hadn't been done before, but with everything, you kind of you know try to hack your way forward to be successful. Success 
as a founder of any new or growing business uh, comes with not just challenges, but also sacrifice. So, Rod, interested in your take on the sacrifices you've had to make to build Zero uh, into what it became. Yeah. So, I mean, I can't complain because the rewards are huge, right? But if you look back, especially doing a business from a small set of rocks in the South Pacific, it was always a long time to fly everywhere. And that's the hardest thing is just being away from friends and family for a long period of time. What was really interesting for me was when I finished, when you took over the rain, Steve, there's a day where you grab your little box and you take it to the lift and go down the lift and walk over to the apartment. And what I realized there was my zero family was my second family. All the people I kind of interacted with because we were on the shared mission and it was a 24 by 7 business was my zero leadership team. And when you leave being the CEO and move on to the board, you kind of got to leave that behind because we were so busy. I just didn't really have time to work on those sort of friendships. So post-work, a big thing has been going back and reconnecting with those good old friends and actually making new friends that aren't work because it was just such a fun journey for such a long amount of time. But a big part of changing was I had been traveling since the kids were naught and uh, as they're getting into high school ages, being around for that. And that's just awesome, you know, being able to drop them off at school and being there to make dinner and those things is uh, pretty cool. Just moving to something a little bit different, Zero has just passed a thousand application partners connected to the platform. And this whole area of the, you know, the open APIs and connecting with the banks and driving the bank data into the Zero platform, that was really a, a very significant innovation in itself. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, how that all came about. Yeah, well, what I, what I realized very early on is that accounting software should be used by almost all businesses, but businesses are very, very different. And a lots of bits of accounting software I've seen would be an industry solution where they'd build the parts management system for an automotive garage or something, then it'd have a pretty bit of crappy accounting functionality that was in part of that, never had to do the same thing. So I figured if we built the best general ledger, and because we were building it on the web, we thought it'd be relatively easy for other people to connect to us. So we always did it in a very open way, thinking that we could get to vertical industries by working with partners that would build the industry-specific stuff for them, and then we would have built the best general ledger sitting behind the scenes for them to connect to. So that was always part of our vision from the beginning, and we actually invested in an API pretty much from day one, and we had a lot of partners coming in using our general ledger from day one. It was super interesting with farming, actually. Farming was a good example of a vertical where the accounting software was integrated to all of the on-farm systems that you would expect. So they then they've been doing it for you know, 10, 20 years. So they had reasonable accounting behind, but it really wasn't their passion. And it was hard for them to keep investing once we were specifically building this online accounting engine. And over the course of a few years, you sort of watch those farming vendors go through the hard decision of whether they actually give up their general ledger and, and work with us. And after, you know, they started off with pretty crazy, quite hard conversations. But after three or four years, we had got to a point where we had a better accounting engine, and then we really saw that API take off. Awesome. With all of this in the zero journey, a lot of it has been about change, not just technology change, but changing the way that accountants, bookkeepers, and small businesses think about the way they do business and, and manage their business. And with that change, there's often fear, fear of change and the caution. A big part of the whole leadership journey is about overcoming fear. Tell me about fear. How you, how do you look at fear? Like, you know, when I talk about that, what, what does that evoke for you in terms of the way you approach fear, the way that you observe fear in others? What comes to mind around that? Yeah, it's really interesting because, uh, you know, people's sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, food, shelter, all of those things, right? And when you're driving change, people get concerned about their livelihood. And there was so much hype in the beginning about cloud changing everything. 
So what we realized was we did a lot of study in the beginning to work out that accountants were the most trusted channel. And we also you know, worked out the influence and the, the guidance that accountants give and the scale that they as a whole give to pretty much all of the small business economy. So with us coming in as a new vendor, they were really worried that they were going to be cut out in some way or devalued in some way. So what we had to do then was to make them comfortable that we were understanding things from their perspective. So remember right back at the beginning of Zero, Hamish was a chartered accountant, one of the Zero co-founders. And so we always had that, how do we make accountants more productive? And the biggest change we've had has not been so much the end customer, it's actually bringing the accounting industry alongside us. So we always brought strong accountants into our business, hired some great accountants, even made I had accountants come in and be great salespeople because they understood it, but we built it and, and we, we demystified what we were doing and made sure that we were acknowledged how we were helping the accounting industry. And then the first few people change and now, you know, it's pretty standard. And when you're saying before that the growth we're still seeing in the accountants channel 15 years on is, is huge, which makes you want to go back and say, jeepers guys, what, we, what have you been doing the last 15? But we're still, you know, winning those big firms. And in the journey, Rod, what were you afraid of? Was anything that, like, did fear play at all in the journey? And if it did, whereabouts would it have played? Being a public company, we were basically doing a startup completely visible and there was no hiding. So when you're sitting there, as you'd know, doing those six-month earning calls, every cent we've spent and every revenue we've made, you are judged on. And that, get, you know, that definitely keeps your feet close to the fire. So that's pretty scary. You know, you're telling a story, but it's not like you tell a story all the time. You get judged every six months on exactly what you've done. You know, that just means that you've just got this urgency to make things happen because you know what it's like standing there in front of a room full of people. You're looking after other people's money. It's a massive responsibility. So that was a huge amount of pressure. For you, maybe fear of letting others down would be what Completely, you Completely, and yeah. being found to, you know, just not being able to execute because we told a big story and then, you know, thank goodness it all worked or we'll, we would have had to move to Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I would actually describe you as a pretty fearless person. We can maybe touch on that a little bit later. So one of the big things, obviously, with businesses that start up and then succeed and scale is that time of founder transition. And often it, it can go very badly wrong. People would observe that uh, Zero's handled that well, and that comes back to you. And that point in time when you decide it was time to pass the baton to somebody else. So really interested to sort of reflect on what was your thinking behind that? And then maybe some of the frustrations as a founder who's still very much involved with the business, what some of those frustrations are of now being a non-executive director rather than being the guy running the show every day. So, you know, doing these businesses, these are 24 by 7 businesses. I remember really on watching on Christmas Day how many users we had doing the accounting. And I'm sure it's 50 times as much now, but I remember seeing 20,000 customers doing their accounting on Christmas Day. It never stops. It's 24 7. Because we had teams all around the world, I don't know how many offices we have now, but at one point it was 19, it might be 30 odd now. You know, you're continuously traveling, continuously away from the family. It's just hard work. It's a roller coaster you can't get off. I was really focused on product and vision and um, that gets pretty set. So there's always good new things we can do, but we kind of know what we're doing for the next three to five years, right? And then as we got bigger, it became much more around the people side of how you build global teams. What do you do centrally? What do you outsource to the regions? How does that interconnect work? And it's very much a people coaching business. About 18 months before we did the transition, 
I asked Steve to come in and help us build a global organization. So we'd got to know the executive team and got to know Steve for a long time. And you were part of our kind of global catch-ups every six to, every six to 12 weeks. And I was, I could see very clearly that it was time where it wasn't about the innovation. The innovation was kind of locked in and the culture was locked in. It was much more about those people management things. And I realized that you had much better skills and probably a lot more patience than I had. And it was now about not the heroes of one or two people. It was actually building a cohesive team. And I think founder-led businesses very much start with the heroics of the founder who just doesn't know any better and is just driving things forward. But at some point, they transition where it's actually about building a really great team. You know, I think you're one of the best people in the world at it, Steve. Well, thanks, Rod. And certainly uh, can't say enough about how supportive you have been and the way you continue to challenge and also shape the way that we think about the future. So thank you for well, that. I think we said before in a meeting that the share price is now four times higher than when I left. So clearly I was holding the business back. Just um, reflecting now a little bit on you know what we've been through over the last 18 months with a global pandemic and the terrible impacts that's had and the challenges that it has created and how the world is now evolving. What's your thinking on the state of things more broadly, but also any thoughts on the very significant and increasing focus on corporate social responsibility and how that is going to influence the way that companies operate and deal with their stakeholders going forward? Yeah, I mean, we've always sort of prioritized our staff. We think if we, you know, if we have great teams, they'll really look after our customers, which in turn means we look after our shareholders. So we've always, I think, been right at the front end of doing the right things for staff. And it was an incredibly hard time. I hope Tony won't, won't mind me sharing this, but we had a board meeting the other day with Tony, who runs our US office. And uh, Susan, one of our great directors, just asked how he was going. And he started to tear up, as we all did. And it just brought home how hard it's been when you've got a staff member that's, you know, trying to, you know, they're, they're a great salesperson and they're in the laundry trying to keep the door closed while they're doing a Zoom call and a, you know, and a two-year-old trying to come in. It's been incredibly hard for a huge amount of people. Our Melbourne team, we have a great team in Australia, having to go back into lockdown for the fourth time was just incredibly difficult. You know, some of our UK people haven't been in the office for well over a year now. So it's been so hard, but we've, you know, we've been able to watch it happen, provide support when we can. And it's amazing to think that we've still been growing staff that haven't even been to the office. So uh, it's just challenging the assumptions of how we work. But I think we were very empathetic to how our customers are working as well. And what I think we've always been very proud of is being able to get that information out, give people aid and assistance. We also did a lot of work three or four years ago. And, you know, Craig Hudson, who, who runs our New Zealand business, has been recognized for this. Like we've really looked at wellness, mental health and those issues. And seeing someone as strong as Craig just be completely open with the challenges that he's had. And this is a, you know, six foot six powerful top international rugby player sharing his story, I think gave everyone a license to actually think about wellness through our community. You know, that was before COVID days. And as I think we were quite well prepared for the mental impact of everything that people have been through for, for the last year. So still a journey, but this tale will go on for quite a few years. So I think we've all got a lot of work to do. 
I sincerely believe that you, you not only build a great company, but you build a great culture at the heart of that company. And we always talk about hashtag human as being, in a sense, the foundational value of what Zero is all about. And the way that sort of exists in our business is the deep sense of care that we have for our people, but also those we do business with. I described it once to you. I said, it's almost like there's this indigeneity about that culture at Zero. Tell me a little bit, if you can, about where you think that comes from what the origins are of that culture. Yeah, I think quite a lot of it are our Indigenous roots in New Zealand. Our iwi, our tribes have really, have always had really good, uh, really good values, which have become our own uh, New Zealand values. They are, you know, taking a long-term custodial view, which, you know, translate to our human value and all those things. And I think because we were a public company so early, and we were so radically different, we never cared about short-term share price. You know, what I said before, us being able to do placements, we didn't even really care about value because we got to reset our value by going and doing these placements. And we did quite a few of those in our first four or five years. Even then, we were taking a long-term view. And it's interesting now working with you, even over the last few days, Steve, you know, you're talking about our 10-year plans. So we're 15 years into it and we still have 10-year plans that are out there and 10-year roadmaps. So I think that kind of long-term view and, um, you know, what's interesting, you know, starting this business in, in my 40s and then being, you know, in mid-50s now, like time just races past. So, you know, best time to plant a tree is um, 20 years ago, but the second best time is right now. So I think we're always doing those right things. And I think I'm proud that a lot of our New Zealand values come from that be great when we get more of our teams together around the world. But I'll go and chat to our people in Southern California. And then the next week, we'd be up in Northern England racing around. And these are different groups of people that are so, so, so different, yet they have this core value, which they seem to align with. Single piece of advice that you would give to people who are listening that um, might be facing uh, a little bit of fear in taking on the journey towards making a change or building something they believe in? Any any single piece of advice that you would suggest? Yeah, well, um, uh, two things. So one of my Naitahu values is deliberate action. And I use that value a lot now where I'm trying to get things done. I really think about what is that next step I can do? You know, each journey starts with the first step. So what is the deliberate action that you move towards your goal? It's always been a good one. And then my second thing would be what I've always done. I've never really felt like I felt stressed, but I must have been incredibly stressed all the way through looking back. But what I did was I tried to exercise every day, and that's for two reasons. One is if we are sort of biological computers, just you know, sweating and flushing things out, you physically can't feel the same. But what I also worked out is your brain requires time for unconscious thought. So I used to try to go for a bike ride at lunchtime. I was about 45 minutes up, up my normal track. And whenever I was coming and, you know, you don't think about work while you're doing it, you're thinking about getting to that next corner and all that sort of stuff. So it forces you to think about something else, which isn't your problem. And every time I ride down the hill, I have this euphoric feeling of these, the puzzle pieces that kind of all clicked into places. So I really advocate, especially for senior people, is just get that exercise, go for a run, go for a walk, whatever, just get sweating because that forces your brain to just process everything. And every time without fail, I'd come back and big problems of just that seemed insurmountable, just fall into place. That's awesome. Great advice. I think uh, I love the expression that ideas are a commodity, good execution isn't. And you know the fact that you're a creative person who can imagine the future, but at the same time, really focus on what's the action to really progress things is a great insight. Really appreciate it. I actually do have a few really quick questions to close this out. I only require a one or two word response. Your favorite color? 
Purple. Your favourite car? Oh, I, I love electric cars at the moment. Um, my electric mini is awesome. Music, song or band, what's your favourite thing or thing that comes to mind? I used to say Romeo Void. That was back in the 80s. <laughs> I did uh, orchestral manoeuvres in the dark. We we're going to play in Melbourne last November, but I'm hoping that gets rescheduled. Uh, your favourite sport? I love surfing, snowboarding, but I'm doing a lot of mountain biking, actually doing jumps now, which cannot end well. Yeah, that sort of relates to my comment earlier about you being fearless. It sounds like what you're doing on that mountain bike would be something I would be very fearful of. But I'm, I'm incredibly scared of it. But the like, like if you had said 12 months ago, I'd actually be flying through the air. I'd go, no, you're joking. But I love that it's you set goals and then you have this amazing feeling of achievement right until you hit the tree. <laughs> yeah, good on you. But keep landing safely, please. And maybe the final one, if you could invite uh, someone to dinner, someone past or someone present, uh, who would that be if you could just have a, someone you'd really want to have a chat with over dinner? Oh, it has to be Elon. He's the most interesting person in the world at the moment because he's just executing so much strategy. One of the best things I've seen, actually, if you want to get a get a sense of that, they've done a few keynotes. Battery was the last one, but they did a autonomous keynote. It's quite long, hour and a half, but it was really interesting how they laid out that strategy for the computers they needed, then the machine learning that they did, and then how they distribute software through the fleet. It was one of the best technical vision presentations I've seen. So if people geek out on that, that uh, Tesla Investor Day around autonomy is still fantastic. Hey, Rod, thank you. You have made a huge difference to thousands and thousands of accounts and bookkeepers around the world, millions of small business customers around the world that um, are benefiting today and will benefit in the future from you being able to take your belief, your vision and turn that into something real and something special. And certainly I uh, feel very privileged to have the opportunity to be the custodian of Zero and its culture and to be working with you to do more great stuff as we go forward. So thank you for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. 